Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. I am your host, Diane Bondi, and today's chat around well-being is with somebody I slightly, or maybe not so slightly, fangirl about on Instagram, and it is Healthy with Kelsey, Kelsey Ellis. So here we go. She has over 10 years of experience, over 500 clients, and she's an expert in the field of fitness and nutrition. She... This isn't her side hustle. She is 100% committed to people learning how to be in relationship with their bodies and to elevate their own personal power and joy. She is somebody that walks the walk and talks the talk. So I really love her message that goes way beyond the body positive scope, more into an interpersonal relationship with your own movement. So why don't you listen in while the two of us talk about all things well-being, all things that make us feel good in our bodies and how we continue to move through the world in a way that elevates all of us. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. I am your host and guide on this particular journey, Diane Bondi. And today I am very excited to talk to somebody I admire and follow on the gram who's got incredible ideas Healthy with Kelsey, fellow Canadian. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey. Thanks so much for having me today, Diane. I to be here. I am grateful you are here. I was just checking out your Instagram this morning, and I saw your uh, your promotion that you were doing with Canadian Tire because I was like, "Ooh, I want that weight tree in the back there." You know, I love that you're forward facing in the fitness space as a black woman with a traditional, if I dare say it, kind of black body that is emulated throughout the beauty standards, and somebody who has embraced body positive fitness in a really wonderful and intentional way. And I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast. So I want to know how you got started on this journey. Like what inspired you to step into the fitness space? And the second question is, what are some of the barriers or some of the things that have showed up for you as a black woman in the fitness space? Absolutely. There's been a long journey to kind of get to where I am now. It happened over the course, I would say of 10 years or so, really. I came out of college as a college dropout. I had crazy anxiety um, actually traveling from Canada, going to the United States on a softball scholarship and just the huge differentiation between being Canadian, being in the US, being on the West Coast versus being on the East Coast, um, being in a school that was predominantly white, uh, Mm. a white Catholic school. And just a lot of bullying and challenges that I faced through my college career. I ended up coming home early. And then, of course, my parents were like, well, if you're not in college, then you need to get a job. And I was like, sure. well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And so, you know, I had my, my retail jobs and things like that. And I had always been an athlete my entire life. Uh, so when I saw an in Craigslist for being a personal trainer, it popped out on the page for me. And I was like, you know what, I I think I could do that. And I had no idea about, you know, what I wanted to bring to that space at that time. It just seemed at, you know, the ripe age of 20 years old, like a good idea to kind of step into that. It seemed from a financial standpoint better than being in retail. And, you know, I started in that space and I became a trainer and I worked in a traditional fitness environment in a big box gym. And Mm. 
through my course of my career at the big box gym, it was about nine years that I had worked there. And I really only gym. And mm-hmm. it really was just your traditional, like same fitness messaging all the time down weight loss because that's what is predominantly sold to women and you know as a trainer I followed in the footsteps of of what they teach you there which is weigh your client do your body compositions do take their measurements be very invasive um and you know tell them how much their body fat is and then they're going to be upset about it and then they're probably going to buy more training and they're probably going to buy more diet plans or whatever it was and Mm. I but, you know, I would have people come into my office. I was required to do it as a trainer uh, by upper management. And I hated it. I, I hated mm-hmm. it so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would kind of fake it. I was like, you don't have to step on the scale today. Like, we'll just say that you did, but whatever. And, you know, my clients love that. And I saw, you know, the difference in them when we were able to really focus on what their wellness goals were outside mm-hmm. of what their body weight was. And. At that point, you know, I decided I'm going to break off. I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and uh, when the pandemic happened, I worked because of big box and clothes. So I really had a time to reevaluate what I want to do with my life, how I want to mm-hmm. show up in this space. And that was when Healthy Wealthy was formed. And my old company was called Bodylicious Fitness. <laughs> so it, had, it was in a transition. And right, um, right. 2017 too, I went back to school to become a a nutritionist. And when I did that, I also started to incorporate a lot of intuitive eating into the realm of fitness and bring that language to the table, which people had never really heard much about at that time. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, shocked by that. You could listen to your body and you didn't have to follow a meal plan um, being in the wellness (laughs) environment. Yeah. So, you know, combining that with the fitness aspect it's really what kind of formed Healthy with Kelsey and the fact that we can move for reasons outside of what it looks like and for aesthetic purposes. So that's kind of how I, very short, long-winded way to what I'm doing now. But um, in the gym that I was working at too, there was very few people of color. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I would receive so many legs so much commentary on my legs. And I don't think that this is something that is unique to black women in general. We have very strong, powerful thighs and we're always shocked by it. And they always love to make yeah. comments about how they wish they had our butts. Um, yep. And, you know, for and so long. And pay for it too. <laughs> and pay for it. Exactly. And pay for, and for it so too, long, right? I took it as a compliment, but I didn't realize yeah. at that time in my life, how much really was underneath the surface. I hadn't done any mm-hmm. work of really understanding, you know, white supremacy's role within the fitness industry. And mm-hmm. over the last two years, I have done a lot more work diving into this and really understanding my own personal implicit bias topics and how I've shown up and how I'm receiving comments and compliments, quote unquote, differently these days is completely changed my perspective and understanding. And that helped cultivate a more inclusive practice that I have and a more inclusive space that I I love that. There's so many things that you touched on there that I speak to in that when we're receiving these compliments, we're not understanding that these compliments are feeding into our own internalized self-oppression about how we feel about our bodies and how it's so interesting to me how Black women are often the beauty standard, yet we're not seen as the beauty standard. So any of the features that we come about naturally through our culture 
are duplicated in whiteness and whiteness is celebrated for that, whereas black blackness is demonized for that. So I think really, I didn't really understand all of that too until I did a deep dive into the way I felt about my own body. And I very rarely see women of color and black women in particular in the fitness spaces as fitness leaders. And I think one thing that really touched my heart is I follow you and maybe I stalk you a little bit um, because you're so creative with your content. You're so interesting with your content. Uh, When you had posted a picture in your gym advertising that you were offering services as a personal trainer and to have other trainers like make fun of your body in that post and for you to hear that because that really touched my heart as trainers you would think or for trainers you would think that we're interested in body diversity I think it's a very strange idea that we're all living up to this singleized um, ideal of what a perfect body looks like that is steeped in white supremacy. Like, you know, our bodies are always commodified in some kind of way. And then at the same time, demonized. And that was a really hard thing to do. And was it that you were standing behind these people who were making these comments about their body? Like, how did you hear about this? And like, I don't want to relive any trauma for you, but what, what did that teach you in the moment? just off to the side I don't know that they had any awareness that I was in the room or maybe they connect didn't connect the dots that that person the poster was me but I had Mm. was working with a client in the same room it was like a fitness studio and in the fitness studio my poster was up on the wall it was advertising exactly like you know my little training thing and here's a little bio about me and they commented on my legs and for me that was always my place of where I felt most insecure about and naturally Mm -hmm. As, you know, as women in the fitness industry, we're supposed to have, you know, no lumps, no bumps, no cellulite. Um, and my legs were the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I heard that, I really internalized that as not being good enough. And that catapulted me first pathway of disordered eating and having mm-hmm. disordered thoughts about my body. And mm-hmm. that was really what set off an unhealthy relationship. Well, there's a lot of things that set off an unhealthy relationship with my body, fitness in general, but that really took things to the next level for me. And I think the biggest challenge within the fitness industry is people have this as trainers don't listen to their clients when their clients tell them they have goals other than changing their body. It's like, they don't believe it. Yeah. They don't believe it. And we just assume, and then we make choices um, about, you know, how to build training programs or how to build their eating plans or whatever that might be based on their desire, what they think is the underlying desire to still lose weight. So, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I think it's just a challenge for trainers to really catch themselves projecting those biases onto their clients and truly listening. Somebody says, because I want to not feel pain in my knees or I want to move because I want yeah. to have more energy. Take that for face value and don't attach your own mm-hmm. projections into that. And that would only happen if your trainers are doing self-study or if your trainers are aware that uh, weight loss is not the goal. And you said something very powerful when it was the policy of the, you know, of your 
management and of the gym that you worked at, that we take these measurements and that we tap into that emotional unworthiness that we attach to this measurement, that somehow we are our bodies and what our bodies look like define our worth in the world, right? Like that pretty privilege we talk about, the better looking you are, the more access you have to wealth and opportunity and all those things. And we tap into that on such a cerebral level that they're going to buy more. So that really um, speaks to me as a person who teaches yoga, where in the yoga practice, if we're actually teaching yoga and not just fast, hot calisthenics in a gym, Mm -hmm. we're teaching people that what we, that our bodies are an extension of our divine selves and they don't need to be fixed. And your whole life's journey isn't about fixing a body to fit a, a beauty standard that never existed in the first place and doesn't take into consideration the diversity sizes of bodies, that bodies of different cultures, ethnicities, and colors are just different. And that there's just no one size fits all kind of model. Because I've done some reading around, you know, why we do certain exercises in fitness and why it is we choose to do three sets of 15 and all that kind of stuff. What I don't think what a lot of people know is the way that fitness routines are set up are inherently based on white male goals, not necessarily what other people are looking for. And moving forward into the fitness space, like you said, Kelsey, we have to listen to our clients. And the first time I hired a personal trainer as a uh, adult woman, um, as a woman with children, as a uh, dare I say older woman, I had to tell them I won't be doing measurements and I won't be stepping on a scale because I have a history of disordered eating. I had a raging eating disorder that I nurtured for the better part of 30 years and only came to understand my relationship with that eating disorder when I got pregnant and my body wasn't just about me, it was about someone else as well. And that I was more respectful of that human being I was carrying than I was of my own body, which is really interesting to me. I had to like unpack that. Once my body was being shared with someone else, my intention was I would never want to harm that other person. So I need to suspend my bad behavior. So not only was I aware of this behavior that was detrimental to my well-being, but I wasn't going to set that baggage or that, you know, that that activity onto my son who I was carrying at the time. And then I had to also unpack that, that I don't think I'm worthy enough to take care of my body when I'm not you know, carrying another human being. And I had to really unpack these toxic messaging. And I know a lot of toxicity around fitness comes from gym class. I don't know, I recently read a a piece around gym class where they literally shame you in gym class. I don't know what it was like where you went to school, but around the sixth grade, we had to do fitness testing, which incorporated a four minute run, um, doing a number of sit-ups, doing a number of push-ups, and hanging from a rope for a certain amount of time. And they measured your fitness based on those activities. And I really think it's unfortunate because if you're in a certain body, maybe you have more upper body strength. Um, Maybe if you're another body, maybe you have more lower body strength. If you're an athlete at school already, if you're on the soccer team, your cardiovascular fitness is going to be different from somebody who maybe does gymnastics. Like, it's really interesting that we set these universal standards. We start very young. We weigh people at school in front of everybody. And then we wonder why young children, young women, young men, young people, young humans have a disordered relationship with their body. We're all like, how did this happen? It's infuriating. It is infuriating. infuriating. 
I found that been two for people, there has been often two root sources of where they feel like they're incompetent when it comes to fitness or wellness, or they've had, you know, a traumatic experience. And one of those you mentioned, which is in school. In, and I remember doing a similar fitness where, you know, you do four things and then basically you're determined whether you are considered fit or not, or how bad your fitness is or how good your fitness is. And I remember that hanging one. We didn't have to hang from a rope, but we had to hang from a bar, like a chin. Mm. And the whole class watches while this goes on. And the other one is with, if you played on a competitive sporting team that intrinsically it is built in with having to do things like, you know, suicide laps and burpees or wall sits and hold it. If your team loses or if mm, you're the mm-hmm. slowest one, yes. the ball or it's like, you, yeah. it attaches when you've had failure, quote unquote failure, you missed the ball or you didn't, you know, get the shot in attaching that with now punishment. So people start mm. to associate exercise. Punitive. Yes. And so being a athlete my entire life, I was always subjected to that, you know, running laps over and over. And I hated running. Believe it or not, I played soccer and I hated running. (laughs) And it really deteriorated my relationship with running as an adult because I felt like I had to do it versus that I got Mm -hmm. to do it. And so Mm -hmm. I would attach these goals, like I have to run for a certain distance or at a certain speed Speed. for it to count. And so I I hated doing it. And then I realized as I was older and I could make my own, you know, quote unquote rule running. If I wanted to run for five minutes, I could. If I wanted to stop and walk, I could. I started to create a new relationship with running and I started to enjoy it more when I got to set the tone of it and not have to do it in a competitive group where I'm just trying to keep up with everybody else. I'm five foot two. I got short legs. I'm yes. strong as hell, but I'm not a great runner. <laughs> I thought that. I'm giving you the circle clap because I've got five foot two and I've got a big booty and heavy legs. And it takes a while to get my momentum forward, but I can do it. I br- yeah. I ran a half marathon. I ran two half marathons two summers ago. Inadvertently. Wow. I didn't mean to run two. Uh, I just, <laughs> my, my running partner at the time, D was like, Oh, like, Ooh, lemon's doing this. Do you want to run? I'm like, ah, we're all trained up. Why don't we do it? And then we run the Detroit half because that's how I was managing my um, anxiety um, at the height of the pandemic. But I love what you say about that. I love how you speak about how we directly connect fitness with being punitive to our bodies when we make a mistake, when you miss the goal, when you miss the catch, when you do that, all of a sudden you have to do this, this work. And it's like shaming on a whole level with everybody else. So I think it's important that we name that there is fitness trauma, that there is trauma in these spaces that develop into a very disordered relationship with your body. So I I think an up. Yeah, go ahead. The other big, contributing factor to that too is using exercise as a form of punishment for what you ate. That's the mm, other mm-hmm. contributing factor is that we yeah. we attach our worthiness to eating either good or clean or eating, you know, junky foods and it being bad and then feeling like we have to use fitness as a way to make up for it that because fitness has been sold to us as as this calculation as if we can just yeah. do this math equation for our body and we go, you know, calories in calories out. And if you want to lose, you have to burn more than you take in. And it, it doesn't work like that. I, I, that is no. such an old way of thinking. About it. Yep. Yes. It, it leaves out the fact that we are ever evolving human beings with organ systems that are always changing and what you need yesterday does not determine what you need today. You know, you're yep. stressed where you are in your cycle. There's so many things that, 
change what you need. How old you are. Yeah. How How old old you are. are. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we're looking at this more holistically. And I didn't have this full understanding. And still a lot of trainers out there with this mindset. I would even argue that there's the majority of trainers out there have this mindset that calories in versus calories out. I have learned, I had a dramatic weight loss in the last five years, and it was completely due to illness. And I, and that changed my whole perspective of the world and how my body worked. And there is a correlation, not a causation, with disordered eating and thyroid disease. We've seen some things that have happened. And so I developed a hyperactive thyroid. So all of a sudden, I'm eating so much and my body is just losing weight and everybody is congratulating me and I'm not even acknowledging that it's happening and I'm feeling sweaty and tired and my blood pressure is like 160 over 90 like I'm two seconds away from stroking out and people are all people can tell me is how proud they are of me that I'm losing weight and I'm not doing anything I'm actually getting up in the middle of the night and driving to the nearest drive through and eating an entire meal in the middle of the night because I'm so friggin hungry and yet this weight is falling off of me and so that really taught me that hormones plays a large part in how your body um works its metabolism like that I I you know and because that little thyroid gland in your throat controls so many things and I had no idea it it, that really it really clicked with me that all the stuff that I've ever been taught by trying to control my body or punish my body was garbage right was Mm -hmm. absolute garbage and when people were absolute constantly on Instagram and social media, every space I went, everybody was constantly congratulating me so much so that I did a live that I did videos to tell people stop congratulating me for this perceived weight loss because I'm sick. I came really close to having a heart attack and dying because of a condition I had. And everybody just wanted to congratulate me on being thin and people are thinner and people, um, that I talked to online about this, we're having the same conversations around when they were dealing with breast cancer or they were dealing with a, like a, 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 a serious chronic illness. And one of the side effects of that serious chronic illness was weight loss. And I had people saying things like, I wish I could have hyperthyroidism for a month. And I'm like, no, you don't. You really, really don't. It's a horrible existence and experience. And I think we are so conditioned that weight loss is the end goal for everything that people are willing to have a near fatal disease in order to achieve weight loss. It reminds me a lot of, you know, clients who have had who are struggling with their mental health or are taking, you know, antidepressants or antipsychotic medication. And one of the side effects of that medication is weight loss and how thrilled they are about that. And I think to myself, it's not about that. It's about managing Mm -hmm. your mental health. And that should not even be an option on the table. And I feel like a lot of them have doctors who have said, well, you know, hey, hey, yeah, this medication, and then they're scared to stop using it, because they don't want that benefit to stop. And it's just like, perceived benefit. It's yeah, perceived benefit. And you know, what? you mentioned something earlier too that reminded me of the fact that I always tell my clients that diet culture is something that problem in the first place and then sells yes. you the solution. That doesn't within the 96% of the time. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. So when I look at like the systems in place for, you know, the fitness in industry, and this applies to nutrition, this applies to anything within the wellness space really is let's create this perceived 
you know, insecurity for you and then sell you the solution to it. So when we talk about the body compositions, it's a system that you do it on your first session with your trainer. That's why they walk you mm. through a questionnaire on your first day there, because they're going to be able to upsell you based on the totally. fact that you're going to be so disappointed and feeling insecure in your body once you do that. So they just want to get you through the door. Often they'll offer it for free. You don't even right. have to pay. Right. right? That's true. Once you step on the scale, now you're more likely to buy into the solution, quote unquote mm. solution, right? So yeah. it's interesting to me. And I think for me, one of the biggest things I've learned that has kept me going in this space is reminding myself, like, I refuse to be like a pawn in the giant scheme of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I refuse yep. to keep falling into the trap of diet culture over and over again, because it's the same vicious cycle. This mm -hmm. And there's a reason why Weight Watchers has a lifetime membership. And if anybody <laughs> needs any reason to question that, <laughs> there's exactly. a reason for it. That's a perfect open, you know, something you can find right out there in the open that basically says this doesn't work, but you're going to get into it. So exactly. I don't know what more proof you need. <laughs> exactly. And then the idea of Weight Watchers rebranding as WW, as a wellness entity, as a lifestyle brand, we are on to you. We are not fooled by your level of bullshit because no. I find people buy into that. Whenever somebody is caught doing something inappropriate or wrong, I find big companies, the first thing they do is rebrand. Yeah. Let's rebrand and distance ourselves from our previous bad behavior. Let's not acknowledge our previous bad behavior. Let's not speak to the bigger issues at hand. Let's just rebrand, repackage and keep um, you know, and keep selling this garbage. And this leads me to my next question. I have a hard time with wellness versus well-being. And that's why this podcast is called the Intentional Well-Being Podcast, because I think the wellness industry has really be co been co-opted by white supremacy and wellness for targeted at mostly white women and missing out a whole demographic of people of color, BIPOC, Black and Indigenous people of color, who also need to be in a wellness space where they're not being criticized for their bodies. So to you, what is the difference between wellness and well-being, if you perceive oh, one? Good. I think I wellness really being the industry in itself. Mm -hmm. And that could be, you know, that could be product, that could be service, that could be you know, a, a spa day. Usually I feel like wellness is something that is sold. Yes. hundred percent. That you experience in your body. I'm giving the circle clap because that's a hundred percent true. And well-being can be, can be priceless. And when I mean priceless, I mean, it's not a commodity. I think yes. wellness is a commodity and I think well-being is an intentional um, reflection on yourself. And I just, I, I had the wonderful opportunity of speaking to the students of the diaspora today at a local high school. And the majority of my students were black women. And I was talking to them about how important it is. A lot of them are activists in the space of, you know, equity and uh, diversity. And I said to them, the importance of taking care of your well-being. We don't need to have a lot of money to go spend $200 on a facial or go spend on a manicure pedicure if that's not within your reach or your wheelhouse. That well-being can be taking a walk around your block if you feel safe to do so. Well-being can be taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon, which I 
think of as an incredible luxury because I don't have a lot of time in the middle of a day. <laughs> but if I can take a nap at two o'clock, which is kind of my burnout time, it's kind of when my brain is like, okay, we've already been up for like nine hours and we need some rest. Like to me, that contributes to me feeling better about myself. That contributes to me elevating my energy and elevating my awareness. And once I've taken that rest, then I can feel empowered to redirect that newfound energy into fighting the system. And that's how yeah. I look at well-being. Like I think you do you follow the nap ministry it. by chance? I do. I think the nap ministry the is like the best possible way to like, fight the system is to rest, <laughs> not contribute to take time, rest and redirect that energy. Absolutely. When Absolutely. you're tired, you can't fight. It's fight, true. Exhausted. And I think that's part of the challenge. It's like, you know, when we're constantly with our body, when we're constantly preoccupied with the fears and of scarcity in the world that we live in, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. don't have the capacity or the energy. Their threshold is so low, they don't have mm -hmm. the energy to advocate, to fight, to change, make change. And I think that's yes. part of you know the suppression, no suppression in a way of people speaking up about you know some of these systems that are really detrimental to our health. If we absolutely you know sick and tired then they're not going to have the capacity and energy. Sick, tired, and medicated. We're not going to have the yes. capacity and energy to, to push back. You know, push back, yeah. To push back. And 100%. that's part of that rage that I have that in that I'm like, I am not going to continue to keep being part of the system in this way. And my goal is to help, you know, by speaking up awareness and bring people on board who also feel the same way, who no longer stand for these systems to operate in the ways that they have been, that have been so toxic. Detrimental. In our system. Yeah. So detrimental. Today, when we were doing our uh, movement practice, I've really been redesigning exercise because for some people, exercise has a real trigger point. Like I have to exercise as opposed to I get to move my body. Right. And you made mention earlier today around the analogy of running that you don't have to run an eight minute mile or a nine minute mile or, you know, whatever it is that you run a six minute kilometer. You can just go out there for a run and you can stop whenever and, and it counts. And I always tell people and I got this from Louise Green, big fit girl who's actually out in B.C. with you as well, that it's not all or nothing. It is all or something. And just giving yourself an opportunity to remove movement as being punitive. And I've been starting to re like kind of re design or rethink of exercise as joyful, intentional movement. So I do squats a lot. Do I like squats? No. Am I joyful when I'm doing squats? No. But do I need to do squats to keep my kneecaps on my knees? Because I have that, um, displacement of the kneecap my kneecap gravitates to one side and my physiotherapist is like unfortunately squats will help with that and so I do them because I know it's an investment in my knees I know it's an investment in my future self uh, so that's an intentional movement for me what I love the most and she's in the room here is my bike spinderella I bought her at the beginning of the pandemic because I'm like wait I can't go to spin class what am I going to do? I told my husband, I'm buying a spin bike. I'm getting a Peloton app and I'm spinning because I refuse to pay $3,000 for a bike. Okay. I'm just saying that I, <laughs> I, that I can't take outside, thing. that I can't take outside. I'm sorry, but no, 
I'm sorry, but no. So yeah, so I have I have the uh, the hack, uh, you know, and so it's so incredible to ride that bike for the joy of it. And I think that's one of the first videos I saw. You were on that bike doing that. Um, the I reshared it, and I'm like, oh my god, Kelsey is me. I am Kelsey because I'm exactly that person <laughs> on the bike. Like I am singing, I am happy. And when I go to classes, swing classes just started back up here in Ontario. When I go back to class, I'm the only one screaming, hooting and hollering. I take my hair down. I have hairography with my spin class. Like it is a joyful moment. And never in a billion years did I think riding a bike to nowhere would be such a fun experience. Right. And then I get to be consistent with that because people always ask me, how do you say so inspired? I don't, I'm not inspired. I saw this on Instagram. I'm consistent because I know that getting on my bike and doing some kind of joyful movement offsets my absolute hate, hatred of, of squats death by squats, I call it, that joyful, intentional movement is an investment in my current self as well as my future self. And for me, at this age in my life, my mother was on blood pressure medication and had heart disease, had her heart disease had started. So I'm thinking to myself, I want to break that cycle for myself. So I'm going to continue with my with taking care of my body so that at 80, I'm able, because I'm going to be traveling at 80, just so you know, that so I can lift up my 35 pound carry on because I don't know how to pack light and put it in the overhead bin at 80. At 80, I want to be able to get on the floor and play with my grandchildren if I have any at 80. At 80, I want to be able to, you know, still go out there and push the lawnmower around my lawn. So these are investments in my future self. So that also aligns with that intentional movement. And that joyful movement is that getting on the bike and singing along to whatever song is going on, doing the Beyonce ride, you know, doing the JC ride, doing the 90s hip hop ride, and just loving every minute of it and inadvertently getting a workout. The workout is completely secondary. You know, what's interesting. I've had clients before where I've recommended Hard for them initially is to mm-hmm. cover the metrics. So ride your bike, cover the metrics, yes. and then pull that towel off at the end. So you, you know, notice them without Observe. judging yourself or observing them. Just notice what they yeah. look like. And then do it in a class where you do watch the metrics and notice that they're either very similar or generally they're higher when you don't, you're not focused on them all the time. You're thinking how hard this is. You're just getting to move to it because you can be a lot more consistent with it rather than I know for myself when it's like the instructor says, go hard. It's like, I go all of effort and then I can barely yes. pedal for the next song. <laughs> exactly. So it's like at the end of the day, if I just, you know, go kind of moderate yeah. the whole time, it's just the same outline as it would same have been. Outcome. Yeah, outcome yeah, same been outcome. similar. And I would have enjoyed oh, yeah. it a lot more. Absolutely. I remember when I used to belong to a spin studio here in town, I would cover the metrics all the time because, you know, they would give you, okay, your power should be here and your, your cadence Mm. should be here. And we're looking to work at this heart rate. And I would just put the towel right over everything. And when the coach got off the bike and would walk around, I go leave that towel. I'm not here for that. I'm not here for the metrics. I'm here for the joy of the ride. I'm here because I get to move. Because being able to work out and being able to participate in able-bodied fitness is a real privilege. There are so many of us out here, yeah, that don't get to move our bodies on command in a way that we, we have full control of. And so I like to be in awe 
and in relationship with my body as a, as opposed to fighting my body. And I always tell everybody, genetics plays a role, environment plays a role, attitude plays a role. But at the end of the day, Mother Nature will always win. There's no fighting your body. At the end All you of can the do is day, come in community with it. Yes. So why not? We Our whole lives shouldn't be around changing what we look like. Because like you said before, that distracts us from being disruptive. That distracts us from being a rebel with the cause, which is breaking rules that need to be broken, which is what you did at work by saying you don't have to step on the scale. Even though management requires it, I'm going to tell you it's not required here. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. I love women who are rebellious. So as a Black woman in the fitness industry, what are some of the barriers that you butted up against? What is some of the pushback you have personally, gotten? personally, or professionally? Both. Ooh. I think one of the biggest barriers has been uh, professionally is yeah. building trust. Uh, because I think people to white trainers, and that's yeah. what we see a lot of when they go. Yeah. YouTube, for example, I started a YouTube channel earlier this year. And every time I type in, you know, fitness workout or 20 minute dumbbell strength class, all it is is just con- algorithms are white traders yeah. for pages. Yeah, and pages. Anybody who looks like me, I don't see anybody who ever takes nobody sweats <laughs> like yeah oh, oh yeah. yeah but I'm over here laying on my floor like I <laughs> so you know yes. like yep. does anybody else feel this way when they're you know and I think to myself you know it's so hard because I'm so I'm so buried mm. under all of this and then when I'm buried and I have you know low views or whatever people take that as I don't I'm not as not good. good and yeah, that's yeah, not good. true at all it's just I haven't had the opportunity or the exposure mm-hmm. compared to my fellow other white trainers. That has been a struggle, um, both online, offline, is is trust. And I think that can be, honestly, in any industry as a Black Agreed. person. If you have a product Agreed. to sell, if you have sunscreen or a, a makeup brand, or whatever, you are going to have more barriers to over your product because cultivating that trust is absolutely inherently, absolutely. even if you have the best in the world it's true it's true I found the same thing oh no I found the same thing I've had the same thing so I created a YouTube channel maybe a couple of years ago when my first book came out I I've always kind of had a YouTube channel but I took it seriously and became more consistent about posting content because that's the thing with the YouTube channel is consistency right remain always creating that content and I noticed people like yoga with Adrian had like millions of views and doing all this stuff and I'm like Okay, I know I, I'm a, a good instructor. I know I can put this out there. But it wasn't until she actually mentioned me right after everybody was really activated around the death and the murder of George Floyd when white folks were sharing their pages with us yeah. BIPOC people doing us a favor, being performative, however you want to call it. And Yoga with Adrian gave me a shout out. And the minute she gave me a shout out, I came up to 10,000 you know, subscribers in a minute. Right. And then from there, I kind of stalled. Right. Once that whole let's do the social justice thing for five minutes and show people we actually care for five minutes. I knew it was going to pass and I knew there was going to be backlash because that's always how these things work out. But it wasn't until that could you actually elevate your platform. And that made me so sad that we still need a white 
teacher to validate us as human beings for other people to believe that we're good enough to be in the space. And that's what I learned from that entire experience. It really hurt my you heart. You hit the nail on the head. And that's, I think that's where I feel like sometimes I'm a crab in the bucket. You know, I have yes. climbing up the sides of the walls. I'm, I think I'm about to be there. And then I slide back down. And exactly, it's it's waiting for those like validations from other people who have more power in those spaces, you know, yeah. and it's, it's frustrating rather than being able to self-cultivate that. And I hear you on that. It's a huge frustration. And I'm honestly sick and tired of Googling or Pinteresting anything where I have to type black as the first word. I won't find percent until I type in black. I need to look at black hairstyles, outfits on black women. I need to, you know, otherwise it's just all algorithms and things. It's just, so I'm not able to, you know, find the content that I'm looking for. And I assume that people who are just looking, you know, the average person who doesn't know that is just Mm going to type in dumbbell workout, right? And Uh, yes, anybody there, unless I type in like dumbbell workout for black women, and it doesn't even have to be for black women. I just have to, yeah, like see up yeah, yeah, use that in my keywords and my SEO. So people are confined to me. (laughs) It's frustrating. It's absolutely frustrating and exhausting on top of just showing, showing up in the world as a black person or showing up in the world as a black woman. It's exhausting on top of that, that you have to qualify every statement in order to see yourself represented. And I want people to think about that who's listening to this podcast. You never have to type in white people doing, you just type in people doing. And it's yeah. automatically gonna default to whiteness. And that's you the know problem. What? I recently had like an epiphany in my life where earliest experience of of racism and I had such a yep moment just one <laughs> I, just one I know but there's one in particular and this really is when I was in, I think it was in like first grade or kindergarten and I am mixed and biracial but I grew up with my mom and my stepdad who are both white mm-hmm. and so I I never I don't know oh, I ended okay. up five-year-old you're not like really thinking about like oh am I different do I have black skin etc so much and so I remember being pulled out of class to take an ESL test me East Indian children and I think um another color were pulled out of our class to take a random ESL English as a second and I remember thinking I'm so smart I know all my I only weird in my little six-year-old brain and obviously I went in and I remember sitting around this round table and taking the test and I obviously passed with flying colors because English is my first language first language I remember thinking in that moment I am going to have to work harder than everybody else for the rest of my life to get half as far to get half as far and I there will always be this extra barrier for me to have to overcome to prove myself and I try to catch myself because I'm unpacking that now as a 33-year-old woman, how I'm constantly mm-hmm. having this desire to prove myself, to be mm-hmm. better, to feel accepted, like I'm worthy, mm-hmm. I have enough, I have something of worth to offer people. Yes. And I feel like that initial experience laid the groundwork for that, you know? Wow. We get taught that very early on and very young. And I don't know if growing up with two white parents that wasn't maybe expressed to you because my that was one of the first lessons that I was taught as a child, not only from my black parents, but from their friends who were white. First of all, I remember my dad's best friend, whose name was Martin Keith. 
And I remember him sitting me down and saying to me, an old, a much older uh, white man who was a, a professor. And he, he sat down to me and said to me, you're a woman, you're black, and you're fat. You have three strikes against you. Those are the three things that are going to keep you from being successful. So he thought he was doing me a favor, which started the ball rolling on my relationship with my body and my disordered eating because I was maybe seven at the time. Okay, so this is what was instilled in me. And then my parents always taught me from the get go, you have to show up at one hundred and ten percent. And my husband's always commenting on that. He's always saying whenever you do something, you do it one hundred and ten percent. You never do anything halfway. I go because I don't get to pass on mediocrity. I don't get yeah. to. I don't get to. Cool. I don't get to be mediocre. I don't get it. Other folks get to be mediocre and are considered geniuses in their mediocrity. But if you know, if I don't come a hundred percent or hundred and ten correct, it's instantly going to be a blow against my ethnicity or my race. Well, clearly the black person can't do it, and I'm yeah. here to say the black woman can, the black man can, the black person can, the black human can. But you know what I mean? It's instantly going to be an entire um, conversation about how, well, we gave black people the chance and clearly they can't they can't hold up. Right. Not mentioning how many barriers you put in our place in order to hope for us to fail. And we can see that like in American culture, especially with um, a black president who was beyond reproach. There were no scandals in the Obama administration, followed up by the huge buffoon they elected afterward, which was the backlash of a racist country trying to undo the first black president and how much shit the other president got away with doing, including treason. So I am yeah. just baffled that people can't see it or don't understand it or try to gaslight me around it when the examples are evidently clear. You choose yeah. not to see these things because it makes you reflect on who you actually are. And once you reflect on who you actually are, you're maybe not going to like what you find. So that's why you like to gaslight folks or tell me I'm always talking about race because it is always about race. Let's not pretend. I, I show up in a racialized identity that is going to impact every single um, interaction I have doesn't matter if I'm interacting with a black person or a white person. For example, today, when I finished my uh, class at the high school, I was so activated and so inspired. I backed out. I was between two SUVs in my van, which is the worst place you can be. I'm backing out really slowly because I can't see around the first SUV. And of course, I ding somebody who's driving by. And I go, here we go. This is going to be terrible. I get my insurance. I pull out. Another black person pulls out of the car. We see each other. We look at each other's car. And we go, we're good. And we walk away. I can't be guaranteed that I would have had that same experience if that person wasn't black. I'm just saying. I'm not yep. saying. I'm just saying. Yeah. When we saw each other, right? He took a sigh of relief when he saw me because I thought he thought there's going to be some confrontation. And I'm like, oh, my God, did I hit you? I didn't even see you, right? So... And the first thing you I know thought to I myself think... is he's a black man. So this was better for me. Yeah, it's so true. And I think, you know, underlying for any person of color who runs a business or shows up in this uh, public place, for example, on social media, there's this constant fear of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I building my platform, it has created so much more anxiety and stress for oh, me about worrying. I bet. About, you know, this cancel culture. And it's like, yeah, the world is waiting for you to slip up to validate what they already Pounce. think about you. It's true. It's 100% right? true. And on the flip side of that, you created some awesome content that another creator decided to steal 
word for word. They weren't, they weren't even subtle about it because they felt so entitled to you as a black woman that they could just steal your content. I can't tell you how enraged I was. The worst is the fact that they stole content from me where I specifically talked about the inequity between white women and black women. And they stole every piece word for word, but deleted that part of my, my caption. That enraged me the most. That's where I really noticed that we now have really tied race into this because not only did you steal the content, but you specifically removed the part where I talk about the indiscrepancies between white women and black women in this. And that was a huge component of my words, my, your whole point. And you're the same. It's from my heart. These are my words. These are my, this is everything. These are my experiences. These are my experiences and you experience and then recreate them to fit your own narrative. And that made me so upset. So it's it's battles like that, that we're fighting every day on top of trying to run our businesses. It's incredible when you posted about it. Exhausting. Because I had taken a couple couple days off uh, social media. And then I came back on to you expressing this. And I was like, what the? And then I went to that creator's page. And I wrote a huge diatribe on her page. And I said, make this right. Or I'm going to publicly out your ass to everybody. And what I have to say about the D squad on Instagram (laughs) is they come correct. If you come and you show your ass, they're going to tell you about yourself. And I just... I can't tell you how enraged I was. I was enraged, right? My husband's always like, well, should you be doing these public shamings? I'm like, if people aren't going to be accountable for their actions, I have no problem calling them out in a public space. That person had no problem stealing your content and putting it up on their page in a public space. So they should be okay to be called out when they do that. Just saying. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it was infuriating. I had never really I experienced bet. anything that like that. It, I, I don't know how to describe it. it, it I felt very much like, again, that crap. Violating. Bucket, you know, I'm working is violating. And I felt like I had worked so hard to build this up and for someone to come in and utilize my content to boost their own platform. It just felt like I, I felt, felt so, so empowered and, to do it. And the comments that were under those posts, congratulating that person to validate what they were doing was okay from other white women that really that made it that much worse you know (laughs) I hope I hope I hope some of your black sisters came to the party because I I was enraged I I let that that's where I knew the healthy with Kelsey community came through and they really had my back because same thing I when I couldn't do it anymore because you you know it's how it feels exhausting. when you're the the victim of it. It's like you don't have yeah. the capacity, the energy, and this is where I really needed to call my community to have that support because I didn't have it in me. You yeah. Know, oh yeah. Sitting on my couch like crying, so I didn't of have course. the capacity to come in and fight this. And also, again, that fear with cancel culture that what I calling that person out that they, you know, felt turned nerd, around, turned around, and now they have done something that has you know poorly reflected on myself that cancels me yeah. it's just like it's exhausting how do I navigate this space? and I was like I Auntie Diane help me <laughs> oh lord I, I let that person have it I was I was livid like I could I could feel the steam rising off the top of my head you were I, I think I started with how dare you you should be ashamed of yourself like I start that's how I started the conversation and I just thought how, how do you feel so entitled to somebody else's content that you feel you can just steal it and pass it off as your own 
But that's what white culture does all the time, all the time. So that feels normal to people like her, them, (laughs) people like them. It feels normal. Millions. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. They feel normal to appropriate. Oh, well, she's just a black woman. Nobody's going to give a shit about her. I'll steal her content. And we see that to be true in lots of stories. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, guess what? And we're, we are blessed, your community, my community. I love it. They come correct. It's like when somebody shows their whole ass on my page in their comments, I say to my husband, you know what, before I comment, I'm going to leave it for an hour and see what happens. And inadvertently I come back and somebody's corrected the situation. I'm like, no need to comment. Somebody said exactly what I was feeling. And I, and I'm hopeful that it's a person who's the same culture as the person who showed their whole ass. (laughs) I agree. I, those words need to come from those people because yeah. again, that's where the trust is. That's where they're going to take yep. it for face value rather than feeling attacked. They're going to be feeling called in rather than called out and trying Absolutely. to, trying to help people understand the difference can be exhausting because there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on around being what the difference is between being called in and called out. But People need to also take responsibility. And I think for so long, white people have not had to take responsibility. Totally. And so when they are called shocked by it, but at the end of the day, being shocked by it doesn't mean that you don't have to do anything about it. Yes. <laughs> calling yes. Not from a place to sh- publicly shame you, but to have a learning experience and to know that this is not okay. And hope absolutely a different space in the future. And to think, right, to think, and to also understand that there can be no healing without accountability. Yeah, You just have to own it. We are, we are human. We are bound to screw up. We are bound to get it wrong. We are bound to step into it. And language and culture is shifting and evolving constantly. What was okay last week may not be okay today. What was okay 10 years ago is definitely not okay today. And so when we screw it up and when we get it wrong, instead of coming with what, that wasn't my intention and I was only curious and why are you being so mean? Instead of all that bullshit, just be like, whoa, I clearly triggered you. I was absolutely wrong to roll up you on this way. This will never happen again. And what can I do to fix the situation? What do you need from me to make this better? How can I show you I'm holding myself accountable and I want to do the right thing? And people aren't ready for that. People want to be like, it's not my intention. I understand it's not your intention to belittle to other or shame. It was curiosity or whatever bullshit you want to call it. But the person has now communicated to you the harm that you have caused. Now you need to be accountable for that harm. Just own it. Like if you would just own it and apologize, a lot of these conversations wouldn't have to go any further. There wouldn't have to be a public shaming or a calling in. We wouldn't have to drag you. <laughs> we wouldn't drag you. If you would just own it and apologize, we could all move on. And when you apologize, don't do it again. Learn your lesson. It's not that hard. We as Black folks have to constantly learn our lessons the hard way and publicly. It's your turn. Mm -hmm. It's your turn, right? It can't, if you thought this was going to go on forever, it's not. Like things are changing and you either get on board or you get left behind. Kudos to that. Well said. Well said. I'm just saying. Well, I think that's a good place to end our conversation today. I love your content. I love you. And I've been so excited. It's only taken us, I think, six months to finally find time where we are both free to get together. And I want to know if somebody wants to train with you or buy any of your courses 
or be in contact with you, what's the best way to, to reach out to Healthy with Kelsey? Yeah, the best way to reach out to me is to get through to me on Instagram, which is healthy underscore with underscore Kelsey. You can connect with me there. You can also check out my website, which is uh, kelseyellis.ca. Um, and in contact, I have a new group coaching program that's launching of 2022, which is really focused on rebuilding your relationship with your, rebuilding your relationship Love. with health and fitness and redefining what those things mean to you. And it's an eight week mm -hmm. intensive. And so it's a really beautiful experience that I just, I feel so thrilled and like passionate about, and I'm so excited to host it again. I just had one in September and I host some about twice a year. So if you're looking to connect and really sit down and start to do Unpack. the work of unlearning, unpacking, and creating a new narrative for yourself in your life, then that's really um, a good place to start. So I hope they'll join me on that, on that journey. Uh, <laughs> that's what it is. Absolutely. Don't forget to tag me in that so I can share it on my pages because I really feel part of the community is supporting and uplifting other Black women and other Black creators. If we don't look out for each other and coming to find out, nobody else will. So we need to really support each other and lift each other up and share our platforms. So if you want to get in contact and be in relationship with healthy with Kelsey, check her out on Instagram, healthy underscore with underscore Kelsey. And I share a lot of her content on my page. So you can scroll through my page and find her if you can't find her there. And what a wonderful, enlightening, inspirational conversation we had today. I'm grateful to have here, have you here on the Intentional Wellbeing podcast. I'm going to continue to follow you and uplift you. And I'm grateful to be in community with you, Kelsey. Uh, right back at you, Diane. It's been an honor and a pleasure to get to share with you and have this conversation today. And I'm going to walk into the rest of my day feeling a lot more empowered and lighter on my feet. So thank you. Thank you. And so make sure you listen to us anywhere you can find podcasts. And if you have a minute, I would love it if you would rate this podcast. Give us five stars. You know this conversation was fire. And uh, recommend it to your friends, anybody you think who could learn something from this pod. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And I'll catch you next time. I thank Healthy with Kelsey for allowing me to share this opportunity to explore what well-being looks like in all kinds of bodies. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I was excited to be able to talk to Kelsey and share her message. So if you want to get in contact with Kelsey, you can check her out on Healthy with Kelsey on Instagram, as well as on her website, KelseyEllis.ca. So just to be clear, it's healthy underscore with underscore Kelsey. Go ahead and check her out. She's got great content. She always makes me smile and she always reminds me that I can befriend my body at any time and my movement can be about joy and less about punishing my body. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And if you like this podcast, please give it a thumbs up. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. Share your thoughts on the podcast and let me know if there's anybody else that you would like me to interview for the podcast. You can always catch up with me, Diane Bondi on my Instagram DMs, Diane Bondi Yoga Official. I would love to hear from you or at Diane at DianeBondi.com. I'll see you next time.